Salutations Traveller. My name is Colin Hazard and this is episode 9 of the Dunkern Podcast. Number 9, number 9, number 9, number 9, number... Yes, here we are on the first podcast of March and though it's still technically winter, spring is on the horizon and here's hoping for better times ahead than what followed on from March 2020. But we don't want to talk about that. Since we last spoke, I have, I really should put some sort of klaxon or something in here to indicate that I'm about to do a bit of shameless self-promotion, but I do think this is worth shouting about. So since we last spoke, I have been longlisted for the Seamus Heaney Award for New Writing 2021. And what that means is every year the Community Arts Partnership put together a poetry book, an anthology of poems by poets on the island of Ireland. And from all of the poems that are submitted, they choose what they deem to be the best for publication. And then the best of those get put onto a long list for the Seamus Heaney Award. And then at an award ceremony that gets uh, shortened onto a short list. And then obviously a winner is picked. You can't see it, but I'm using that term, the best poems in quotation marks. Because poetry, like all art forms, is subjective. And I tell you a story shortly on that train of thought, which will confirm that beyond all reasonable doubt. But I'm very honoured and surprised to have this poem on the Heaney Longlist. The award ceremony and the book launch, uh, which normally happens in the Seamus Heaney home place up in Bellahy, is online this year, as you would expect, and it's all happening on Sunday the 28th of March. Don't quote me on it, but I believe the tickets are available from the Community Arts Partnership website from next week, and they will be free. So if you are a poetry fan, that will be a really lovely and no doubt inspiring way to spend your Sunday afternoon. And here's hoping for the win. But getting back to that subject of subjectivity, the long story short is last week, my book publisher was working on the layout and the formatting of my book. And as it turns out, I had too many poems. I was over the page count and I had to cut two poems from the book. So the publisher sent me an email with suggestions for poems that they thought should be cut. And you probably know where this is going, but in amongst those suggestions was the poem that was long listed for the Heaney Award. But the most ironic thing was that this all happened on the same day. So the Heaney long list came out in the morning and then in the afternoon I got the email from the publisher to say, here is the poems that we think could be cut. So I think for any writers listening, that'll probably be comforting in some sort of way because ultimately it's all subjective. And as I talked about with Amy on last week's podcast, we have to deal with so much rejection and we can end up doubting our own work and our own abilities. The conclusion of the story is that the poem is still in the book, uh, but that just really surprised me and I thought I should share that with you on the podcast. Uh, The last podcast that came out was just before I started my poetry writing workshops with the Dunkern and I've done two of those so far out of six and they've both been really great sessions Um, it's been great to actually chat with the group and to share poems and just connect with each other from my side I was unbelievably nervous before the first session now I've hosted workshops with children and with adults and with all different abilities over a number of years but you just never know how it's going to go And all these doubts kind of creep in. Will the class enjoy it? 
Are the exercises okay? Is it structured? Will there be any tech issues, which is a new thing I have to worry about? Um, I actually get more nervous before workshops than I do before performing on stage because more things can go wrong. And plus it lasts longer. You're on stage for maybe 15, 20 minutes, whereas a workshop can last two hours. So I have a huge respect for like full-time teachers and facilitators who put themselves through this type of thing as a career. But my group seemed to be enjoying it. Everyone turned up for the second session, so the first one must have gone okay. And they are doing some fantastic writing, which obviously is what it's all about. But away from the trials and tribulations of Colin Hazard, you may have noticed that the Dunkern is selling tickets for a concert. Yes, it's not until November, but it is a real live gig. So all being well, the wonderful young folk singer Neve Regan will be in the Dunkern on Friday the 19th of November. And I know that seems like ages away, but if you want something to look forward to, then visit the Dunkern website for the tickets and the information on that actual real live event. And while you're online, you may be interested to note that the Dunkern podcast is going visual. That's right, at this year's Imagine Festival, which is at the end of this month, I will be presenting a special video stream podcast where I'll be chatting with two local artists under the loose theme of race and identity. My guests will be Kieran Harper, who is a mixed media artist, and Raquel McKee, who is a Caribbean-born poet, storyteller and actress. Both guests have really fantastic creative CVs with various awards and accolades, so it's sure to be a great chat. If you want to join me, Kieran and Raquel, on Wednesday the 24th of March at 6pm. Tickets are free and they are available through the Imagine Festival website, which is imaginebelfast.com. But speaking of great podcast guests, I'd like to introduce you to this episode's guest. People may know him from the local music scene as the Mad Dalton, as that's the musical moniker that he's been working under for a number of years. But more recently, he has shed his Mad Dalton skin to write and create music under his own name, which is Peter Sumad. I met Peter quite by chance when the Mad Dalton was booked to perform uh, on a stage that I was managing at Sunflower Fest in 2017. And I was really captivated by the songs and the songwriting. And it's been fantastic to see him progress on and release a brilliant and eclectic album called Open Season in 2018. He has been featured in and or had rave reviews from the likes of RTE, Hot Press, Chord Blossom, BBC's Across the Line, The Thin Air and many more. And his musical journey has led him to perform as far afield as London, Paris, Toronto and Berlin. However, he calls North Belfast his home. Before I hand over to me, I'd like to say that the Dunkern podcast is honoured that Peter has very kindly let us have the world exclusive first play of his debut single, which is called Parting Wounds. The song is not due for release for a number of weeks yet, but you will hear Parting Wounds in its entirety at the end of our chat and it's definitely worth waiting for. On a side note, opening the ninth episode of the podcast with a clip from the Beatles Revolution number nine was an idea that came from Peter's brilliant brain. So now, without further ado, I will toss the podcast hosting duties back through time to last Saturday when I gave Peter Sumad a tinkle on the old dog and Zoom. This is Colin calling Colin. Come in, Colin. This is Colin calling Colin. Come in, Colin. Thank you, Colin, for that wonderful handover. Great to hear from you again. 
and I am joined on the Zoom line by the Scots-Canadian musician known as the Mad Dalton, a.k.a. Peter Sumad, and also the first guest I've had on who is actually based in North Belfast. Hello and welcome to the Dunkern Podcast. Peter, how are you? Thank you very much for that introduction, Colin. It's an honour to join you here today. Well, our pleasure to have you. Uh, two weeks ago when I recorded this podcast on a Saturday, it was snowing outside, but today the sun is shining, spring is almost here, and I don't know about you, but I definitely had a lift from the change in the weather. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely been noticeable these last few weeks. It's great to be sort of uh, seeing the sunrise a little earlier. I think we're kind of all ready to shake off some of these uh, cobwebs and um, good for the soul, good for the soul. Definitely is. And well, ultimately what I want to talk about is how you ended up in North Belfast. So I guess we have to go back to the start. As I mentioned in the introduction, you are a Scots-Canadian Let's start with your actual physical, literal journey on how you ended up in the wonderful place that is North Belfast. Yeah, I mean, it's a strange enterprise, um, you know, life. I guess some born no long where home is and others sift through the pieces. Um, I mean, I was born in Scotland and, um, you know, lived in Canada at different points in my life. I think if you'd told me you know, a year before I actually ended up in, in Belfast that I would be here, I would have, you know, questioned <laughs> that notion. But I came to Belfast in 2003. I had never uh, been on this island uh, before. I had a friend who um, was studying here. She was doing master's degree um, at Queen's and in Irish studies, no less. And Really, that's what brought me here initially. So I really feel that, you know, something carried me here and that what's caused me to stay is really kind of almost like that Belfast has sort of just, I don't know, chosen me to stay here in a way. I think when you're, it's very curious when you speak with people who are non-natives, of which there are many in, in Belfast, um, a growing number um over the years that i've been here um so it's 17 uh years now and that's the longest i've ever been anywhere it's incredible the number of people who have stayed here there's like a a buzz here you know there's an addictive quality almost um it's an intensely interesting place you know being here has been an absolute honor and uh, a privilege um to sort of live and, and create on this island and um i've really enjoyed immersing myself in the culture and the community here, especially in North Belfast, and um, making music, working alongside some incredible creatives and really inspirational people. So you released an EP in 2015 called The Little Belfry, and there was an album in 2018 called Open Season, which were released under the moniker of The Mad Dalton, which you're probably best known as. So mm. what is a Dalton and what makes you a mad one? <laughs> <laughs> well... My mother's mom's maiden name was Dalton. She was from Yorkshire, and I think that they were all sort of market gardeners. And um, I think a couple of them, you know, had a few sort of issues as you as, as people do. And this sort of from from that um, narrative was born an expression that my my uncle 
used when referring to them, um, called them those mad Daltons. And there were some, yeah, just some rather, just interesting tales um, about them coming from that community. And, you know, for a long time, what I wanted to do was, you know, form a band and call it the Mad Daltons, just as a sort of homage to that part of my own uh, heritage. And I thought it was a kind of a cool name. But, you know, it was interesting because I, I know that sort of in the past yourself and having listened to some of the other podcasts, it was quite interesting speaking or, or listening to yourself and, and, and Stephen James Smith discuss um, being failed musicians uh, who are now writing poetry. I thought that was a really interesting discussion because, you know, I was probably, you know, a committed uh, writer and poet long before I became a committed sort of musician. So I'm not suggesting I'm a failed poet who's become a musician. But certainly the literary aspect of thing has always been something that's been, you know, really, really deeply ingrained in, you know, my own sort of uh, inspiration and certainly driven me quite a long way. So I actually decided um, while I was here, living just across the street from the Duncairn, actually on Duncairn Avenue, to do a website called themaddalton.com. And it was a literary-based website. So um, I set that up primarily as a vehicle for my writing. I, I was writing a lot of uh, poetry, short stories, you know, essays, putting it on a website. Funnily enough, in true sort of Belfast sort of fashion, there was this random phone call from a gentleman down by the, the Odyssey. Um, who ran the sports bar next to the, the arena, uh, a Canadian guy. And he was basically starting a house band um, for this Canadian sports bar in Belfast, of all things. Yeah, I remember, um, I remember it well. Yeah, did you ever have a pint in there? Yeah, I had a few pints in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he wanted to form his house band and I basically helped him put it together. We did that for about a year. Um, so I sort of learned my chops, playing live, doing that for the better part of a year. And then I kind of just realized that I didn't really want to be playing covers. I, I had quite a lot of my own material from songs that I'd written in Canada and, and songs that I found myself writing. And uh, I basically kind of gave the guys who was playing with sort of um, just the scoop. And it was like, do you guys want to play covers or do you want to? you know, do you want to play some original tunes? And, uh, you know, my, my fellow bandmates preferred the idea of playing original tunes as opposed to covers. Um, we elected to call ourselves the Mad Daltons. Um, it was all sort of my material um, that we were using. And um, what we kind of realized along the way before things sort of were officially christened was that you know, there was a lot of sort of no-shows here and there for rehearsals, as you find with musicians. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so whether the drummer had a touch of the vodka flu or, you know, or the accordion player had the Buckfast lurgy or whatever it might be, um, <laughs> I kind of realized that I was maybe leading myself into a situation whereby, you know, it would be really tough for me to gig on my own. Um, so that's actually something that uh, led to the name actually becoming the Mad Dalton. So 
so that's kind of how that name came about. I think it was very much, uh, you know, always destined to be a, a band project and, and has been, you know, primarily. Okay, that's, that's quite interesting. I mean, I knew, I knew obviously you were the driving force behind the Mad Dalton as the, the lead singer, the songwriter, etc. But I didn't realize that you had started out as a poet. And this was kind of this blossomed from that. Uh, so this was this was poetry something that you had always kind of written from childhood? Yeah, I mean, I wrote my first sort of little piece of, of literature before I left Scotland. And I was actually like six years old, which I think is, I don't know, something kind of disturbing about that looking back because, you know, that's, that's young. Um, what's probably more disturbing is the subject matter. Hmm. And what I, it was actually, it, the book was actually a, a little book. I put it together and I called it The Lonely Tadpole. It was a story of a tadpole swimming in the water and then it's looking around for a mate and then it sees one, sees another tadpole. And it's like, oh, wow. And as it's swimming towards the other tadpole out of nowhere, and I, I, I don't know where this image came from, but out of nowhere, this sort of frog man like, comes along with a spear gun and shoots the tadpole before it can embrace the other tadpole. So it's just this like sort of weird tragic tale and i even like stapled the pages together and figured i could sell it at the spar in dundee <laughs> so i kind of branded the top of the cover as spar but i yeah so pretty disturbing really um i'm just delighted you chose the mad dolphin instead of the lonely tadpole as a, a band name <laughs> yeah the lonely tadpoles that's uh well you never know colin that uh it could come up could but, be a side um, project yeah, let's come in our side project, man. Um, <laughs> I think, um, you know, I mean, after that, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I've always written. I've always written. Poetry is something I've always felt deeply committed to. Um, I've always felt really, it's always felt very important to me to honor whatever outlets may be there, be it music, be it visual, you know, be it writing, um, be it singing, you know, playing instruments. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to sort of get it all out there. I think, you know, at some point we make a choice as to, you know, what what it is that we want to focus on. Of course, that's important. And I think I've been quite content, although I've had some, you know, poetry published. Um, I think I felt that just sort of in the current era for me at the time, and, and we're going back to just when I sort of started out in the music stuff, that was just honoring that particular direction at that time i think there's something about music it's it's <laughs> you know it's it's an immediate gratifying experience you press play it's there you get the idea you know poetry um reading a book you know that is a different experience it's obviously incredible amazing um but music has always been something that, uh, you know, since then that I've, that's, that's the direction I've cho chosen to, to focus on. And there is for me a difference between writing a poem, be it a haiku or sonnet or something that's sort of, you know, prose, as opposed to sitting down and writing a song, you know, that for me has always been, have always been two separate threads or there's a different tonality to it, you know. And when you sit down at your desk, do you have it in your mind that you're going this is now I'm going to focus on writing a poem or a song or a short story. Is there, is there that, or is it just more of an organic thing to write and then see how it unfolds? 
Oh, I think it's definitely an organic thing. I think, um, you know, I think a lot of certainly my work um, is not born out of a the thought to write a song or to write a poem. It's it's whatever. Yeah, I don't I don't think that I would sort of sit down and say now I'm going to write a song, you know, something has already brought me to, to my working desk, as you say, well, in and around when I started the, the Mad Dog website, I was writing a lot and I felt sort of a, a need to somehow not to legitimize it, but I felt that I wanted to do sort of a course. I, I mean, and I was very suspicious of doing a creative writing course because I, I didn't feel like I, I needed it as a creative person. I maybe felt that what I was wanting to do was somehow legitimize it because this was like, you know, um, over 10 years ago. And I I felt it might be interesting to give things a bit more structure and to help me with that. But one of the things that came up quite early when they were talking about techniques was, you know, the suggestion that what, you know, might be an idea would be to sit at the desk first thing in the morning before, you know, when your thoughts are still sort of awakening and the, the conscious mind hasn't, you know, weighed down its full heaviness on the, you know, the pure thoughts that you may have in the morning. And it's this idea of morning pages, but that's actually something that I've been doing subconsciously, you know, over all the years. And what comes from that, um, it could be anything. It could be songs, it could be poetry, it could be stories, it could be ideas. I think the key thing for me, Colin, has always been to always answer that call, to always be, you know, prepared to honor what's coming your way and not be dismissive of it, whatever it may be. If you recognize it to be a poem, then to, you know, to run with that. Um, if it's a line, if it's a melody. And, you know, in this particular age, perhaps there's less of an absence, um, or there's more of an absence, I should say, of pen and paper um, and tools like, you know, we used to have, you know, dictaphones, you know, I don't know if you ever had one of those mic set things. They're, they were great. I mean, you know, nowadays you can click the, the voice memo on, mm. on, your, on your phone or you can, you know, use the notes application. I mean, I would say that I'm very good at capturing whatever it is that may be arising, you know, through those, those mediums. And that gives me the material to work with, um, with whatever it may be. So I don't try to sort of preconceive, oh, I'm going to write a volume of poetry this year. Or I'm going to write an album this year. I mean, I think what happens is I find that I have a collection of songs, a collection of poems, and then it's like, oh, I ought to do something with that, perhaps. So that's that's how I've traditionally worked. Yeah. And do you ever suffer from writer's block? The idea of sort of writer's block isn't something that, you know, I subscribe to. I think that's an idea that for me is, is an unnecessary obstacle. I think that, um, you know, there's an approach, I think that creates the right conditions for being creative. And I think if you're exercising that, then I think it can be a well that if you treat it well um, and honor it and nourish it, will we'll always be there. I know on, on your album, you have a, a tribute song to Venerate Cohen, not, well, maybe tribute song is too grand a term to put on it, but it's certainly a nod in his direction. Uh, so like who, who would be your influences? Where, who's, in, who's in that well that you're going to draw inspiration from? 
Well, I mean, I, I hope it's it's me, and um, you know, I think going to well is really what that term implies is that you know you're you're looking within. So what's within, um, and you know, I guess from what what comes within is from you know the connections you make, and and yes, all those influences and how you're living, and um, you know the different narratives and how they all converge. I think that. You know, a, a book that was really quite influential was a biography, um, believe it or not, about uh, the lead singer of The Doors, uh, the poet uh, Jim Morrison. And influential in that in that book, there were mentions of writers like Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, Arthur Rimbaud, and that led me to sort of discovering a biography about Allen Ginsberg, which led me to Kerouac further and, and also to Hambo. And they've always been sort of writers, poets who have been really, really influential. You know, Kerouac in particular. Um, so I discovered and was reading, you know, Kerouac in my sort of teens. But, you know, like one thing that was really quite important for me with Kerouac was, I mean, I, I played... Uh, I played ice hockey in Canada. My first time on skates was like actually playing ice hockey. My mother had brought me over from Scotland. I think I was seven, yeah, I was seven years old. And I, you know, I had a Scots accent. It's from the East Coast of Scotland. And my mom didn't really know what to do with me, you know, new country for her as well. And uh, she asked some people in her office, you know, what do I do with a, a seven-year-old kid? And I think one of the mothers had said, well, does he play hockey? And um, my mom didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that was, but sure enough, within a few weeks, I was on the ice, on skates for the first time, playing ice hockey. And, you know, it's it's not something I excelled at, but it's something I really enjoyed, you know, full contact sport, you know, seven, eight years old. I, I really enjoyed playing ice hockey. I really enjoyed playing baseball. And, you know, I was a kind of athletic kid. So what I found is like with this sort of like love of, of, of athletics or those particular sports, particularly baseball and ice hockey, as I had also sort of developed my own creative, you know, rhythm, I felt really, really, really committed to that. I wasn't aware of really any tough or any kind of sports people who like you weren't really meant to be sort of into sports and also be sensitive writing poet sort of person. And I, I really struggled with that for a while. Um, you know, I left home when I was like 14, 15, writing and, 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 and doing all that sort of stuff. I returned back to, to Scotland. And when I came back to sort of North America and got more into Kerouac, I, I found out that Kerouac had been a high school football player, uh, American football player, and had really, really loved, you know, sports, but was also, you know, writing. And it, I felt like that kind of gave me permission, in a way, to sort of be, you know, um, a young man who could be equally involved in, in sports or enjoy sports, at least, and, and also be able to have a different side uh, to himself. How important do you think those experiences of Scotland, of Canada, and then more recently of Northern Ireland are to kind of your own writing? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. 
I mean, I think that obviously we're we're living obviously currently in you know a uniquely uh, defining you know time and era, and I think that's made things very, very, very present. And with things being very, very present, I mean, I think that it's it's all about and been all about you know the art of standing still and and you know making art of that. And it's not been easy. I mean, I think there's been a lot of reflection with that. I think it's something that creative people have been perhaps better positioned to deal with. Yes, it's an enforced isolation, but I think, you know, creative people are prone to an element of self-isolation. I think with that, for myself, I think it's been very much about, you know, being very aware about where, where I am um, on this island, and that's led to me to explore different aspects of myself, my own creative process within that context. For example, uh, I was asked by the writer, filmmaker, uh, Chilla uh, Toldi to um, do a piece for uh, Bloomsday 2020. Um, so that was in June last year. So uh, it was to take a, a poem, or sorry, a song that Joyce had written and to adapt that. So it's a piece that Joyce wrote without music and the remit, if you like, was to put that to music and do my own version of it. That's something that for me was really interesting because it's, you know, connecting myself with, you know, Irish literature, of course. It's a real honor to sort of have the um, platform to, you know, to compose that and also to just, you know, find a way of, of taking this literary form um, and doing your own version of it, but also be able to put it to music and to perform it. And that felt very important. It's, it's a version of a song called Bridget's Song. You know, through the last sort of year, connecting more with the island, with Belfast has been something that's, you know, become more and more significant. Mm -hmm. um, you know, during lockdown, one of the things that also obviously happened was the the murder of George Floyd. So my first time out of the house was to go to the first protest outside City Hall for Black Lives Matters. And, you know, one of the things that I, I have always explored, regardless of where I've been, has been my, my own mixed ethnicity. And, you know, it made me just feel a lot more aware when, you know, this, this wonderful coming together of people in front of City Hall here in Belfast took on such significance to really sort of, you know, understand, you know, my own ethnicity that I, I have, sadly, at different points in my life, Scotland and Canada, um, and here I, I have sort of been on the receiving end of, of, of racial um, abuse, believe it or not, it seems really weird. And I guess I just uh you know felt like that's something i really need to explore more i wanted to explore more and a big part of that of course is my indian heritage my father is you know indian uh west indian so that means both he and my relatives were brought from india as indentured laborers to trinidad in the caribbean so 
I began exploring that. I mean, indentured labor is just really a, you know, it's just a cover up for slave, you know. I think exploring that aspect of, of, of my own heritage, my own culture, um, was something I had begun back in Canada, um, studying the sitar, which I did for a number of years with uh, Arshad Khan, who comes from like a, a family of sitar players going back like three or 400 years, you know. Uh, it's pretty crazy. He he actually had a bass sitar, believe it or not. And this thing is like, I don't know if you've seen piano strings before, but I mean, like you could you could tow a truck with these things. And mm. Surbahar, the bass sitar, actually has these strings on it. And after Arshad would play it, you'd see his hand all ripped up. It was pretty intense, you know. Um, so my exploration of my own sort of creativity here living here in Belfast and and sort of just I suppose you know we've all been sort of paying attention to different things we've all been sort of forced to stand still or sit still and and one of the things that is is very unusual and and unique uniquely common about Irish music and the Indian music which I've studied um, is the drone instruments and the drone instruments being an undercurrent of, of all the things that sort of permeate through, you know, life, you know, it's, if you're sitting in the morning and, and with everything that's been standing still, you, you can hear, you know, just this hum and that's just this drone. It's this drone of life. Okay. But it's, it's a, it's a characteristic of Irish music. It's a characteristic of Indian music. And in Indian music, it's a tempura, which is a cyclical instrument. And it's also um, the, the undercurrent is typically a harmonium, um, which is a kind of like a, a boxed or, a, or accordion. Um, so I actually picked up an accordion. Sorry, I, I actually picked up a harmonium and began to learn that in conjunction with the piece I'd done for, for Bloomsday where I'd use like an Irish tuning. That's, that, that's an area that, you know, I'm very keen to sort of explore um, creatively um, because it's sort of honoring, for me, it's honoring my sort of Indian roots. It's also honoring the place that I've chosen to call home. Well, tying, tying together the idea of songwriting and this musicianship and also this idea of place, one of the songs from the album Open Season that really struck me right from the moment I first heard it uh, was The Devil Came to Derry When the devil came to Derry He was wearing all black jeans Holes in both his pockets He looked far beyond his means Evil Oh evil Always sports a strange disguise Grips you as greets you and looks you in the eyes. Maybe you just want to tell us a little bit about the, the kind of the story behind that and how that idea came to you. It's a song that I began writing, funnily enough, in Derry. <laughs> um, I moved to Derry about, you know, eight months after I, I moved over here to to Belfast. I was offered a job in Derry, which I took. And 
the job didn't really work out and I found myself for the first time in a long time and certainly the first time here on the dole in Derry which was a very interesting experience um we were so poor that we you know my my girlfriend and I would sort of roam the back alleys of Craigan Hill next to Brook Park behind the Don Bar looking for things we could burn to keep warm in the house yeah it was a pretty savage sort of time and you know being poor teaches you lessons the song really just began to write itself from that sort of time you know the devil could have could be a number of different things i mean i think i find that songs are and should be open to interpretation i know laura touched upon that a lot you know people take different things from them and i think that the devil came to dairy um really just came about Lee about my reflections of of living here in a place that I may not completely understand because as long as I live here I mean I did not grow up sort of being exposed to you know the culture of Belfast um, or Irish uh, culture I did not grow up with that so I can't ever pretend to know what it was like pre uh, 2003 and what it was like to live through what people here have lived through um, and I think coming to a place like that and, you know, knowing that, acknowledging you may never understand that, that in part the song is maybe an exploration of some of the, the fears and some of the, I don't know, just the vibration from that experience and confronting those sentiments of what it's like being a stranger. Well, you've, you've come a long way from roaming the back streets looking for things to burn. I'm assuming you're not, you don't do that anymore. <laughs> your nice house in north belfast uh, sticking with the subject of, of kind of traveling i know you have performed in different places around europe uh, well around the world i really should say mm. what kind of are, are any is there any notable noticeable differences that you find amongst audiences um gosh what a great memory that is eh? playing live <laughs> <laughs> a different time i love france I love France. Um, I mean, you know, people, you know, people here are massively receptive to music, of course. And if there's going to be expectation, it's that, you know, I think people miss live music so much so that when, you know, the, the curtains come up and we can perform live again, that uh, places like here in particular will be, you know, salivating at the, at the opportunity to see some live music. You know, I think that there's such a wonderful crowd at the the Dunkeren whenever there's live music on, and obviously the programming that's been on there has been just phenomenal. Um, I think playing in France um, has always been really, really cool, rewarding. Um, with you know, your with your history of, of being in Canada, do you do you speak French? Oui, je parle français fluemment. <laughs> oh, we're showing off now. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the, the wonderful gifts um, when my mom uh, moved us to Canada that um, I was able to, you know, pick up is, is speaking French. I'm very grateful for that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, speaking speaking French has, has been, um, you know, something that's um, really allowed me to really appreciate French culture and journeying to France. I've, I've performed in um, Charlevoix. Um, which is the hometown and birthplace of, of one of my, um, you know, kind of literary heroes, um, which is the poet Arthur Rimbaud. 
and there's like a canal boat on the Rivière Meuse in Charleville, which is like right next to this old mill where the Rainbow Museum is now based. And like I, I played there one night. Um, there was a blues band on and one of them handed me a guitar and I played and they went bonkers and they were like trying to give me absinthe afterwards and stuff. And <laughs> On the subject of Arthur Rimbaud, what is your involvement with the Rimbaud and Verlaine Foundation? The Rimbaud Verlaine Foundation um, is, a, is a great organization. They are based in London. They are and have been the custodians of a house in Camden, which uh, Rimbaud, the poet, and his um, fellow poet, lover, and companion, Paul Verlaine, had lived in. Uh, there was a famous scene of Verlaine and Rambo fighting, quarreling, doing all kinds of different stuff in that particular house. And the foundation were uh, bequeathed the house to turn into a poet's house um, in the future. Um, there's been some developments with that um, over the years, which are, you know, putting it potentially at risk. But I got connected with the foundation and I was really honored they invited me to London in 2016, um, or it might have been 2017, to play a gig down at King's Place. And that was just really super duper. Um, the first song on the Open Season LP is called On the Lamb. And this is what I mean about songs when you release a song, you know, you just you may write them from a specific point of view, but, you know, I love how you know, people interpret them differently. It's just such a rewarding thing. And, you know, Graham, who um, is on the board of the Rainbow Verlaine Foundation, suggested that it was, it almost seemed as though like the song was written from the point of view of Verlaine in jail, um, writing or singing about his alliance with Rainbow because Verlaine ended up shooting Rainbow in the hand in, in Belgium. Um, so on the strength of that notion, he invited me down to uh, King's Place. And uh, that was just such an honor to be to be part of that. And I had asked uh, Graham, it would be cool to bring a couple of other musicians. And he said, yeah, sure, no problem. Uh, what he didn't know is that accompanying myself on guitar, I decided to bring an accordion player, um, my good buddy, Kieran Scruffy Gallagher a trombone player, my good buddy, Mike Walters. So when the three of us actually took the stage that night, it was it was quite a um, quite a circus. Uh, I don't think people knew really quite what to expect, but uh, somehow we pulled it off. One of the most rewarding things musically um, off the back of that was getting an invitation from the town of Chardelevee to come in and stay in Chardelevee. And I was actually given the opportunity to stay in, in uh, Rambo's uh, teenage home uh, in the town. And, uh, you know, that, that was pretty cool. That's a really nice honor. And uh, certainly hope to get back there again at some point. I know we've talked a lot about place. And I've actually just realized that one of the other songs I wanted to talk to you about is, is based on a place as well. And it's the song Omar Say, which I know you released as a single. And for me, it's it's the standout track on the album. I really just love this the song. There was just um, real beautiful structure to it, beautiful melody. Um, did that song come quickly? 
Yeah, with Omar Say, it's a song that really just starts right itself. And you know, we were talking briefly about Leonard Cohen a little early on. One of the ways that Leonard Cohen has, I think, influenced me perhaps in a similar way to Kerouac is given me sort of this permission or any writer the permission to to edit their own work and I know that seems fairly straightforward but it's a difference between you know you writing a poem and it being done as opposed to writing a poem and it not being done and you know how much do you tweak it do you add verses? Do you keep going with it? Do you change things you've already written? Go yeah. back yourself that way. And I think in, in, in an interview, Leonard Cohen many years ago said that this was a poem that he he read on his on his radio interview that he was later asked, you know, when did you start it? And he said, 35 years ago. <laughs> it, it, it's this idea of a gestation or a gestation period. Um, and basically, Omar Say was a piece where I just kept writing and writing. Ultimately, it's five verses and three choruses. It actually, at one point, was 45 verses and over 20 choruses. It's not a way maybe that most people may work. It's something I give myself the freedom to work that way because you know that way i can really figure out what i'm trying to say um so that that song uh, as as many verses as it was from its inception to the finished piece to recording it in one take um at millbank studios with james little and shooting the video was actually a period of about six months so that was a, a pretty quick turnaround when you consider that uh, On the Lamb, the first song in open season, same album, had actually been written um, approximately, or started approximately 10, 15 years before then. Omar say, I greet you today undaunted Under circumstance nobody wanted from the streets where where we once flaunted, let me share. Oh, Marseille, like a sister that I never had. Oh, so good when I was always free. But from the open season in 2018, you've now got some new music, which I know you released Time Bomb towards the end of last year, which is just a phenomenal song. And, and the video just adds another level to it. I mean, what have you in store for 2021? <laughs> what is 2021 in store for us? Yeah, more to the question. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, I've been releasing music as the Mad Dalton under that moniker um, for some time. And, you know, I think a big part of what has been happening has been... As I was sort of saying, like, you know, this exploration of, of music, um, which is, you know, part of my own heritage, but also part of, you know, the, the local uh, tradition. And my explorations with that have really just led me to sort of feel like I was shedding the skin. And this was a very organic, very natural um, evolution where I felt it was really, really important to 
acknowledge, you know, those um, leanings, which are not so much sort of, you know, rock and roll, uh, you know, wearing shades, you know, and, and really kind of getting back to a more grassroots sort of level of, of creativity, where it is a bit more sort of bare, where it is, you know, just an acoustic guitar or just an accordion and a voice or, you know, just a, a drum and a voice even. Um, and that initial exploration is what led me to record Parting Wounds. And that really is this fusion, if you like, of, of different instrumentation, which is Irish and Indian. But I think for me, what it, it also is, is it's, it's really sort of a stepping aside from a caricature which for me represents something, you know, different. And I think it really, as I say, it's not, you know, departing. It's, it's a sidestep for me to be releasing music under my own name. Really, really important for me to honor that heritage, to honor my name, Sumad. And um, the plan is to continue exploring that. Um, I've had a couple of um, recording uh, sessions, you know, in the, in the last year. Uh, with Michael Mormika. I've known Michael for years and his new studio, Tree Songs, sorry, Tree Song Studios is, is, an, is an amazing place. But I've also been recording with George Sloan at Half Bap Studios in Belfast. And yeah, I mean, I think that people have been doing a lot of incredible work, you know, throughout lockdown, adapting, showing just how resilient artists are, you know, and obviously, um, you know, we can expect a lot of real good music um, off the back of that. And, um, you know, at the appropriate time, when I feel sort of ready, I'll get some more of that music that, um, you know, that I've been working on um, out there into the public domain. Yeah, well, on that subject, one of the expressions that you used earlier, I believe, was forced to sit still in reference to 2020. How did you find 2020? Was it a productive time while you were sitting still? I think it's been really important for for me to in the absence of family um here and living alone i guess there's lots of different perspectives there's a perspective of loneliness and there's perspective of you know uh, freedom you know having the freedom to to do as you wish and um in the absence of family and not being able to go and visit my parents who do live overseas. I think that a big part of that, 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 that has been a big eye opener. But what for me, it's also sort of really brought home is the importance of community. You know, I, I'm a, a big reader, you know, and uh, it's been something I've indulged in quite a bit during lockdown is reading quite a bit and Thich Nhat Hanh, um, the Vietnamese spiritual leader, Buddhist, has this wonderful statement about when he was asked about the next Buddha, would it be a she or a he? Um, they mentioned that it would be neither, that it would be Sangha or community. So the idea that, you know, really the emphasis wouldn't be on an individual, but on community. And I think, I think that we've seen that a lot with people kind of you know, coming together in many different ways. And, you know, whether it's a community of healthcare workers, whether it's a community, you know, the Duncairn, you know, the music community, 
uh, in Belfast, um, you know, community who've rallied around, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. Community is so important. For me, a big part of that has been, you know, helping with getting, you know, a food cooperative registered um, and functioning within the community here in North Belfast. So I've always sort of had a big passion for volunteering and being active. Um, my mother is English. She's also someone who's, you know, suffered like many people from a colonial guilt, but she's translated that into her activism, whether it's, you know, working in slums in India or working in shanties in South Africa, um, you know, protesting against apartheid, you know, helping people, you know, in Toronto who are, you know, suffering from homelessness and just horrible uh, temperatures in the wintertime and, and not having a home and helping them out of the cold. That for me has been a big motivator of being involved with the community. And that was has been a big focus for me at different times throughout lockdown, just to sort of, you know, be, be part of that fabric and that mosaic. And I know how important that's been to the 174 Trust as well. On a creative level, creativity is again it's it's something that has continued to just be something that's remained important without in or in the absence of being able to play music live i don't think that the you know my drive to to create to write uh, to compose music has has ceased uh, in any stretch um so for example the recording sessions i had canceled early on like in in, in march of uh, 2020 um, we basically just rescheduled those uh, and, and we basically completed those in, in October and December. Um, you know, the music that I released last year, um, the last Matt Dalton release, um, that was mostly stuff from my back catalog, um, which given the situation in America um, and working with producer Johnny Woods, who's in the band Winona Bleach, I mean, he and I did a lot of work on on, on getting those songs ready. Um, and it felt like an appropriate time to get that music out there. I didn't want to not release music in 2021. Um, I'd gone through sort of quite a bit of standing still in 2019. And uh, I really wanted to make sure I got music released um, in 2020. And that's what we did. So really, I've also discovered like with the creativity that I found that I was writing every day, really all through, you know, 2019 and 2020. And I have sort of discovered that I, I've actually written and have like a, a volume of poetry, a collection of poems, which wasn't something I planned for at all. Um, so that's something that, you know, may see the light of day at some point. If not, it's certainly another strand in addition to more sort of mad Dalton music, but I'd say that, you know, really a big part of my focus right now is continuing to explore the, the Irish traditional music, the, the Indian traditional music and, and using that as a vehicle for um, my own songwriting. Um, been really blessed to work with some incredible musicians, you know, the last six months. Uh, Sadanand McGee is a, a marvelous tabla player based in Dublin. Um, Davey Bates, who's played drums um, with me for you know a good few years now, 
good lad from East Belfast playing Boron. Um, you know, um, bringing those sorts of elements together to, to, you know, to play some of this new music is is really such a rewarding and uh, incredible experience and keen to sort of get that out and play live, you know, whenever that may be possible, hopefully not too long. Indeed. Uh, just wanted to pick up on some of the, the things you said there. So, I mean, it's wonderful to hear that you you were able to be so creative to write the songs, to write the poems. And as well as that, going back to the, the food cooperative to provide that, you know, that positivity within the community. And as well as that, I know firsthand how well ingrained you are in the community in North Belfast because you're on first name terms with the people in the local kebab shop. <laughs> and I hope that we can get together for kebab at some point soon. Vegetarian kebab, right? Of course, of course. But aside from that, and I'm very pleased to say that you have very kindly given the Dunkern podcast the first play of the forthcoming single, Parting Wounds. Do you want to tell us a bit about the song and how it all came about? Yeah, I'd be delighted. Thank you, Colin. Parting Wounds is a song that I began to write on a guitar, which was loaned to me um, by Neil Robinson, who um, is a luthier, uh, who runs Hook Guitars. Um, he's a joiner by trade and this beautiful guitar has been in my possession for the last few years and before I moved into my house I had the guitar and I kind of put it in the house and just found myself playing that riff which is the opening riff of the song and it's again one of those songs that just began to write itself and I wrote it over most of uh, 2019 and decided in 2020 that it was time to record. And uh, again, just with the awakening of a lot of the cultural um, implications of the Black Lives Matter movement that we were talking about earlier on, um, I really felt it important to include not just aspects of Indian music, but um, also Irish music as well. So it was recorded um, at uh, Tree Song Studios with Michael Marmika. And um, we're joined by Amy Montgomery on vocals, Matt Evans on harmonium, Sadhanan McGee on tabla, and um, Davy Bates on boron. And um, we have released a live version, which um, came out just at the start of the year. So the studio version um, is slightly different. And I suppose if you're asking sort of what it's about, this is the wonderful thing about releasing music. People have different interpretations. Um, you know, I've had people say it sounds like the separation of the old self welcoming in the new self or, you know, the end of a, an old relationship and welcoming in new love or saying goodbye. But I think also the idea of um, the old year of what's happened you know we don't emerge from that without wounds um, and we need to sort of part of our transformation is growing developing self-compassion to allow healing to happen or we retreat um, so it's kind of an acknowledgement of that it's a, a real shedding of skin I think which I think mirrors you know my own journey from releasing music as the mad adult and to releasing music under my own name. But it's very much, I think, a, a very gentle letting go and um, a departure to new noise and 
new affection. Certainly from my side, I can, I can hear that shedding of the skin and the evolution in the songwriting and in the sound. Uh, and I'm just really delighted that you've, you've been willing to share it with the, the Dunkern audience. Uh, so I'll take this opportunity now, first of all, to thank you for being a part of the podcast. Uh, it's been great to see you again, albeit virtually. So hopefully we can get together, as you say, for the kebab and some chat in the real world. But for now, I will introduce the forthcoming single from Peter Sumad, and this is Parting Wounds.
after the fears and all the years freedom for you a curve in the road may bend but not break there's room for two these are my words my parting wounds flowing for you it's in the blood the blood of the land broken in two Beautiful stuff. If you didn't listen to that song in your earphones, I'd highly recommend you go back and do that as the soundscape in your ears just sounds unreal. But if you've enjoyed the songs you've heard, check out Peter Sumad Music on both Facebook and Instagram for more details. And Sumad is spelled S-U-M-A-D-H. And we'd like to thank Peter again for giving us the first play of that song. I believe the Parting Wound single is coming out in April, exact date TBC. But what I'm more looking forward to is the accompanying music video, which I'm reliably informed will feature animation from renowned traditional animator Richard Davies. So look out for that. Uh, and if you get a chance as well, look back at the Mad Dalton's video for Time Bomb, which is stunning as well. So turning from music back to poetry. What I'd like to do now is share with you the poem that was long-listed for the Heaney Award. That's what I'd like to do. Unfortunately, the terms of publication are that the Community Arts Partnership has first dibs on publication. I believe that's a technical legal term. And alas, a podcast is classed as publication. But sure, my book publisher thinks it's rubbish anyway. So while I can't share that poem with you, I can share another poem from the book with you. And this poem was shortlisted for the Arrivo Northwest Words Poetry Competition in 2019. And the reason I'm sharing it now is because it features a couple of parts in French, which ties in with uh, some of the French that Peter was speaking. Now, you'll know the French parts in my poem as I speak them with a French accent. So just look out for those and hopefully you can understand them. Instruction for whoever answers the phone. If the phone makes a weird elongated ring, it'll be a call from Paris and a female voice will ask you, Is Colleen's there? Use the pen and paper beside the phone to note any background noise. A man's voice, a candle being lit, a toilet flushing. If you hear any children, hang up. Should there only be silence, that means she's in the bedroom and is most likely holding the phone in her hand rather than between her ear and shoulder. That's your cue to keep her talking. 
She'll want to know about Ireland. Tell her about the booming tourism and how fantastic the restaurants are. Say the weather has been mild. Don't mention how the rain has been coming in sideways or how we've had snow in April. If she tells you a story, the ending will be just before she says, And that is all. You'll not be able to see it, but she'll also flick her hand up like she's tossing a dice at the ceiling. If she asks you for a story, start with Once Upon a Time and end it with me standing outside the door of her apartment block on a cool summer night, unsure if I should press the buzzer and go back inside or walk along the promenade and hope an answer washes off the tide. It's unlikely there'll be a lull in the conversation, but if so, ask her to guess how long it takes a bullet fired at the moon to fall to the ground. She may know the answer. She may hang up. In either case, you'll start to feel like you've never really looked at the stars and you'll find yourself wondering when she's going to call again. And you've no need to wonder when I'm going to call again because I will be back in just under two weeks' time with our St. Patrick's Day special when my guest will be a woman who has just recently given up a career as a speech and language therapist to become a full-time comedian, presenter and, what's this, a science communicator. No doubt some interesting conversations will be had. Make sure you're following or subscribing so you don't miss it. Keep her lit, keep her handy, be good or be careful, and toodaloo.